0: Thank you for downloading this podcast from Pardes, North America. This episode of Pardes from Jerusalem features Tova Nachmani on Parashat Vayechi. Be sure to subscribe to Pardes from Jerusalem on Spotify for the latest episode. And now, here is Tova Le'anachmani. Parashat Vayechi, the blessings of rebuke. There are things that we have to hear, and there's things we have to say. Think of a time you heard words of criticism about yourself. What did that person claim you did wrong? Now think back to those moments when you heard that critique, and how did you receive it? I know that my own instinctive response is defense. Even if I don't respond out loud to the person who criticized me, and even if the critique is minor, my inner voice usually kicks in with a rebound, sounding something like this. How can you fault me for not spending enough time with you. You're the one who never closes your computer. Or, what do you mean I was late again this week? Don't you know how much work I've had? What is it that makes us shield ourselves with a defensive armor to repel the pointy arrowheads of criticism? Why are we so fearful and anxious or angry and defensive when hearing critiques about ourselves? Words of discontentment and critique may be even coming from our own inner voice, from the voice of our own inner critic. Instead of allowing that inner voice to pull us down, what would it take for us to say, hey, thank you. I'll take that to heart and make a change in myself. This week's Torah portion, I want to think about how we receive rebuke, critique, criticism, and how we give it. And we're going to learn from Yaakov a few life-changing lessons about that. As the book of Bereshit comes to a close, Yaakov, son of Isaac, grandson of Avraham, Yaakov, the patriarch, is about to die. Bedridden and weak, he senses that the end of his life is drawing near. Yaakov summons Yosef, and soon after he gathers all twelve of his sons to give them each a unique and individualized blessing, parting words before he dies. Yaakov does in fact bless some of his sons, especially Yosef and Yuda. He bestows upon them words of praise and promotions of responsibility and leadership. But for some of his other sons, especially Reuven, Shimon, and Levi, Yaakov blesses them with none other than words of criticism, with words of admonishing. To Reuven, Yaakov says with reproach, you are my firstborn. You have the strength to be a leader, but you will not be. For you are pachas Kamaim. You're free flowing like water. You are impetuous. You act before you think. Yaakov is relating to Reuben's chutzpadek act of meddling with his father's marital affairs in Breshi chapter 35, if you want to look that up. To Shimon and Levi, Yaakov gives reprimands. He says to them, Your zealousness led you to extreme acts of violence. When you settle in the land, you must be divided and spread out. Yaakov is, of course, relating to the violent response of Shimon and Levi when they killed the men of the town of Shechem for failing to prevent a leader in their community from sexually abusing their sister, Dina. This is in B'rishit chapter 37. The Torah doesn't reveal how the sons of Yaakov reacted or responded to his words. We only hear Yaakov's voice as he blesses or reprimands his sons one by one. How can a reprimand also be considered a blessing? So the role of admonition or, or reprimand or rebuke is central in Jewish ethical thought. The rabbis in the Midrash in Bereshit Rabban proclaim that there can be no real love or real peace without admonition, critique, and rebuke. In Leviticus we have a mitzvah, an obligation to rebuke. It says, Lo achicha Do not hate your brother in your heart, tocheach et certainly you must rebuke your fellow person and do not carry the burden of sin thereby. What is the burden of sin that we could be carrying if we don't rebuke? If we do not, if we hate someone in our hearts, first and foremost, we could make ourselves sick from stress. The burden of sin could be hurting ourselves. Second, we could become like a walking time bomb and blow up at someone who's not even guilty. I've certainly done that before. Or take out our frustration at the person that we're upset with in a disproportionate and mean way. The burden of sin could be hurting someone else. And third, the rabbis say in Masechet Shabbat, if we do not fulfill the commandment of rebuke, we become responsible for the bad behavior of all those people we could have helped with our rebuke. We could have helped them to become better people. The burden of sin could be allowing wrongs to be committed because of our not rebuking. The Talmud, later on in Masechet Shabbat, maintains that the second temple was destroyed for many, many, many reasons. It lays out many reasons. And one of the reasons is because the righteous people of the generation did not fulfill their obligation to rebuke the wrongdoers of their time and thus shared their guilt. Does that mean that we should be walking around giving out criticism to anyone we see? In a car, we need an an accelerator. We need the gas pedal. But we also need working brakes. We need to know who to critique, when critiquing is beneficial, and how to make critiquing effective. If we listen carefully to the final words of Yaakov as he rebukes his children, we can learn three life-changing lessons about what to be certain to know before rebuking someone else, about how we could practice turning rebuke, things we have to say, into a blessing. Parsha Ve'echi spans the last four chapters of Barishit, chapter 47, 48, 49, and 50. In each and every one of those chapters, Yaakov, who is in Egypt with his children, insists upon being buried by his children in the land of Canaan. Canaan. In fact, the Hebrew word kevel, which as a verb means to bury, and as a noun means a burial plot, is repeated, by my count, at least 18 times in our Torah portion. 18 times, which perhaps makes it, which I think does make it, the central theme of Prashad Bayechi. So what's the connection between Yaakov's burial request and his blessing, or rebuking, his children before he dies? In chapter 47 of Bereshit, Yaakov summons his son, Yosef, to make a special request of him. This is Yaakov's last will and testament, his parting words. He says... Please do not bury me in Egypt. Bury me in the land which God promised to my fathers. Jacob doesn't ask Joseph once to bury him in the land of his ancestors. Jacob asks him twice. The first time as a request, an act of chesed and emet, loving kindness and ultimate truth. And even though Joseph ya- agrees with the ceremonial words, Anochi ki I will do just of you as you have spoken. For Jacob, this is not solid enough not resolute enough, not definite enough, not trusting his son Yosef to leave the familiar, comfortable, and secure life he has helped to create in Egypt for his entire family, Yaakov asks his son Yosef to take an oath, a vow, a non-retractable promise, to bury him with his ancestors in the promised land. Why is Yaakov so suspicious of Yosef, and actually of all of his children? Yaakov's behavior is demonstrating that he simply doesn't trust Yosef to carry out his wishes, to bury him in the land of Canaan, as much as he loves him. Why would he not trust him? If we look to the one verse before Parashat Bayechi begins, we find our answer. It says, Thus the people of Israel settled in the country of Egypt, in the region of Goshen. They acquired holdings in it, meaning they owned real estate. In Hebrew, Bayechi va, and they were fertile and multiplied greatly. Quite simply, they owned land, via achazuba. the word Ahaz means to take a holding of something. Yosef had purchased real estate for them, we learn Ramban teaches us in last week's Torah portion by Yigash. They looked forward to staying in the comfortable conditions they were getting used to in Egypt. Now, The most natural inclination of a family which we all understand and all have experienced is to put down its roots and to feel attached to the place where it has acquisitions and investments to the place where it owns property. This, my friends, is what I think Yahweh wants his children to hear, what he thinks they need to hear. This is what the Torah wants us to continue to ask. To what extent is our individual Jewish identity connected up with, woven together with, with our national Jewish identity? One of the weakest links for many young Jews in the diaspora, and in Israel as well, is that either they were not taught or they did not absorb and develop for themselves a connection beyond their individual Jewish identity to their national Jewish identity, to the greater sense of belonging to the land of Israel and to the people of Israel. The question I ask myself, my inner critic, my inner voice of rebuke, is what can we do and what are we doing to change this? In chapter 48, Yaakov becomes ill. And Yosef comes with his sons, Ephraim and am to see his father. Yaakov summons his strength and sits up in his bed. He tells Yosef in chapter 48, verse 3, that God appeared to him in the land of Canaan to give him the blessing of seed and land. And I quote, I will assign this land to your offspring for an everlasting possession. In Hebrew, ahuzat olam, that same word. They were holding tight to Egypt. And Yaakov says to them that God said to Yaakov himself, I'm going to give you the land of Canaan as an achuzat, an everlasting holding, something you need to hold on to. Yaakov's blessing to Yosef is not just a personal one, that his sons will be considered and counted as Yaakov's own sons. It is a national one that Yosef's two children, Ephraim and Ashe, will each receive portions of land as an inheritance in the promised land, just as and together with each of Yaakov's own children would. Suddenly, in the midst of this encounter with Yosef and his sons, Ephraimim and Ashe, Yaakov seemed to drift off into a distant memory, saying to Yosef, But as for me, when I was returning from Padan, Rachel died when I was journeying in the land of Canaan, some distance short of Ephrath, and I buried her there, on the road to Ephrath. now Bethlehem, Bethlehem. In Hebrew he says What was that sudden memory of burying Rachel on the road to Ephrata about? Today the the Rachel, the burial place of Rachel, traditional burial place though, I know there's also one uh, in, in north of Jerusalem, but there's one just to the southern end of Jerusalem, between Ju- Jerusalem and uh, the beginning of Gush Etzion, close to Ephrat, near Beit Lechem, actually right in Beit Lechem. Um, and farther south of that is Hebron, where the rest of the ancestors are buried. So what was that sudden memory of burying Ochen on the road to Ephrat about? Why, why did Yaakov tell Yosef that? Was it a, just a nostalgic moment now that he's seeing his grandchildren? Or what was it, as Rashi claims, a moment of apology? Rashi claims that Yaakov is apologizing. He's saying to Yosef, Even though I am troubling you, I'm asking you, I'm making you take an oath to carry me up to be buried in the land of Canaan, in our ancestral burial place in Hebron. I know that I did not do that for your mother. I buried your mother in the place where she died, which was on the way, and not in Hebron, in the cave of Machpelah, which Abraham purchased, and where my ancestors are buried. Claiming and owning our own imperfections is a very important pre- preface to rebuking. Yaakov is saying, yes, I'm not perfect. I did not practice then what I am preaching to you now. I did what I could at the time. I did my best. And there's all kinds of commentaries that say that Yaakov actually he wanted to To bury Rachel, not because it was too long of a journey to get to Hebron, but because he was concerned about her honor. He did not want her body to begin to decay uh, and to give off the scent of decay to the people around. And that's why he buried her as quickly as possible, which is our um, custom also in modern times. He says, nevertheless, Yosef, even though I did not do what I'm asking you to do, you must not use that as an excuse to not bury me with my ancestors. That's an important, uh, it's another important lesson before we rebuke. We have to really claim and own our own faults, our own imperfections, uh, before we come and start telling someone else about theirs. In chapter 49 of Belushi, Yaakov falls ill. He summons all of his 12 sons to gather together around his bedside, giving them an unforgettable message, a collective admonition. Even though he blesses each one of them individually, he then says to them at the end, don't leave me in Egypt. Don't leave me in Egypt. Bury me with my ancestors. In chapter 50, the end of, and, and there, sorry, in chapter 49 also, there we also have, in each of the chapters, we have this word ahuza, ahuzat Bury me with my ancestors where Abraham purchased, purchased the burial site as an ahuzat kevel, a holding, a land holding. In chapter 50, Yaakov is in fact buried buried by his children in the promised land, in the burial place of his ancestors, and for the fourth time in our Torah portion, we have the word achuzat kever, a burial place which is a holding. While I was working on this podcast, someone in my family criticized me of something that I took great offense to. It was a perfect test of teaching Torah, not in order to convey information, but as I really try to do in order to evoke transformation, first and foremost. In myself, so before responding to the person who offended me, I turn to Yaakov's rebuke to remind myself how to critique the people that I care about. Three ideas that I'm taking from Yaakov: three critical, critical um, steps to take in the process before rebuking. Number one: to ask myself, what, what do I want to see? What is my positive aim for the person who is being difficult or for my relationship with them? Not only what do I not want them to see, what do I want them to stop doing, but what is my positive aim? For Yaakov, he wanted to be sure that they remember their divine calling, to live as a nation in the promised land. Why? He doesn't say. He never says why. Perhaps it is to fulfill the divine directive, decree, to become a catalyst for change. That's what Avram says. That's what God says to Abraham. When he tells Abraham, he says, Be a catalyst, be a blessing, be a catalyst for change. One on one, a Jew could do that anywhere in the world. But it takes a nation in order to impact other nations. Also, Yaakov wants his children to live together with all their differences, with all of their machlokot, with all of their disagreements, to build one nation under God. Indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Familiar? Yes. Yaakov was saying to his children, you may be living your individual dream here in Egypt, but we are meant to build something together in the land of our ancestors. Number two, when. Timing is critical. Our natural inclination is to tell a person off or to rebuke them in the heat of a conflict with them right then and there, or when we see them doing something that upsets us. But the best time, and really the only time, a person will have the capacity to hear critique is in a moment of confidence, when they feel confident about themselves, or in a moment of closeness, when they feel close to us, when they won't take my critique as an attack on them. For Yaakov, he waits for the ultimate moment of closeness. He waits until the end of his life. That is quite extreme, but it gives us pause to consider our own timing when there are things we feel we have to say. We need to wait, and perhaps for a long time, until we are ready to deliver the critique with love for the person and utmost concern for our relationship. We don't hear the response of Yaakov's children, but I imagine they never forgot his words. And step number three, how. Maybe the most critical part of critique is not what I say, but how I say it, the tone of my voice, though Yaakov says some pretty harsh things to his sons, things they have to hear. His being weak and ill and elderly makes me imagine that he delivered his blessings of rebuke in a loving whisper, and that the sons had to lean in in order to hear him. Yaakov's request to be buried in the land of Canaan is his most important and final wish. And while the blessing of each of his sons seems to be the main focus of this week's Torah portion, it is really only a sub-theme. The real theme of the entire Parsha is Yaakov's insistence to be buried in the land of, their, of his ancestors, in the land promised to them by God. By burying him there, he's making a statement. This is where I belong, and this is where we all, as a family, will be charged with creating a national home for our people. The individual blessings of Yaakov's children are meant to be, to be added to, to be used for the sake, for the purpose of enriching the entire family. Chapter 50, Yaakov dies. His sons do as he instructs them. They carry his bones up from Egypt and bury him in the cave of Machmela, which Avram had bought. And again there we have the word, kever. I could end here, but I have to share one last piece of wisdom that was evoked for me by our Torah portion is that we all need to know not only when to rebuke and how to rebuke, we need to know when not to rebuke. The Torah ends with an exquisite and dramatic moment. Yosef's brothers express their fear of Yosef now that their father is dead. Perfect moment for Yosef to take revenge or at least rebuke. Yosef could have told them off for all the humiliation and tragedy they caused him by plotting to kill him, by stripping him from his coat, by throwing him mercilessly into the pit, for selling him, for forcing him out of the family, for making him estranged from his father, for causing his father endless grief. And in the end, after putting them through the trials and tribulations of confronting their horrible treatment of him, which was not revenge, but rather an opportunity for them to demonstrate their tshuva in the last two weeks of our Torah portions, Yosef chooses now to move forward, to see the good, even the hand of God in all that transpired. Even in a situation where Yosef was wronged, he chose to look ahead at where it has brought him and to even thank God knowing that even the bad can be a catalyst for growth if we choose. That family rift was mended by the attitude of one person, the person who chose not to rebuke. When might we choose not to rebuke someone? Can rebuke be justified if it's just to let off steam is rebuke a catharsis, or is it meant to be a catalyst? In the Hasidic writing of the Baal Shento, he says, When you see problems in someone else, you should know that you have Shemetz Minehu. You have, you have an aspect of that. You have a bit of that in yourself. Not only because you can only fix yourself, really, I can only fix myself, but because that's really the ultimate way of healing my own soul and by that I can have a greater impact on the people around me. Yosef's last words to his brothers in chapter 50 are, God will bring you up from this land in Egypt to the land he promised us. Now completely on board with his father's wishes, Yosef makes his brothers take an oath to carry up his bones after he dies. Yosef dies at the age of 110. It says in the Torah he is embalmed and placed in a coffin, but not buried, I'm adding, in Egypt. There are things we have to hear, and there are things we have to say. Shabbat Shalom. Thanks again for downloading this podcast, a production of Pardes North America. If you liked what you just heard, please give us a five-star review wherever you download your podcasts. Be sure to follow us on Spotify for the latest episode of Pardes from Jerusalem or by visiting elmod.pardes.org. Tune in next week as Rabbi Dr. Mish Hammer-Kasoy teaches on Parashat Shemot. Thanks for listening!